Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode references people who have died. It also features some explicit language and references to suicide. If anything comes up for you, you can call Lifeline on 13114 or the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Crisis Support Line on 13 YARN. People just die young from where I come from. 52 is when you die on the island. Three people a month die. All on modifiable diseases, you know. Dialing in for this episode of Scene is Stuart Yiwa McGrath from Larrakia Country, also known as Darwin. A lot of people consider Australia's healthcare system to be gold standard. You don't have to go into debt for surgery, and if you get a chronic disease, there's an expectation you'll be looked after. But there exists a whole ecosystem of discrimination that city people like me often can't see. The health literacy was quite low where I come from, and English isn't the first language. Stuart's a Galawinku man and single father of two daughters. He's lived in one of the remotest parts of Australia, and he knows firsthand the struggles of health literacy and language barriers, having an Aboriginal mum with a chronic illness. I think I was about 10 or 11. My mother was diagnosed with lupus, or we, we didn't really know back then. Um, so we went back and forth out of the clinic and the hospitals and stuff. It was just heaps of blood tests, blood tests, and she never really got diagnosed. But in the end, it was too late by the time it was diagnosed, so she went into palliative care. I thought it was important that I bridge this gap and then get into health and kind of be that middle person in both worlds. The Yolnu are a people from northeast Arnhem Land, and Stuart's about to become the first registered Yolnu nurse. It's not really your average Australian kid story. Like, I always wanted to be a nurse when I, as a kid sort of thing. So the inspiration came from dark places, you know, Yumi? I'm Yumi Steins, and this is Seen, a podcast about trailblazers who, unseen or unrepresented in the mainstream, rise to excellence anyway. We start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we record, whose culture includes a rich tradition of healing and medicine, the Camaraygal and Gadigal people, and their elders past and present. Hi everyone, my name is Stuart Yuar McGrath and I'm from Elko Island. Stuart is the only Aboriginal health practitioner in his community who's studying nursing, who can speak Yolnu Matha, the language of his people. He spends his time travelling the world talking about cultural safety in the practice of medicine and was also named Young Australian of the Year for the Northern Territory in 2021. And you may have seen him doing parkour in Santorini in Greece, eating pickled lemon in Marrakesh, and dancing the salsa in Colombia on The Amazing Race. Stuart was raised on northeast Arnhem Land in a very remote place called Matamata, right at the top of Australia. I'm not sure if that's on Google Earth or anything. Um, it's probably a house, you know, around six houses. Got a school there. Um, my mother was the teacher and my grandmother. And we would have um, a white teacher that 
flew in once a week um, to teach us, you know, a few words in English here and there. <laughs> wow. So your mum and, and grandma were both teachers there. Yeah. That sounds so tiny. I, I don't know, even know if I can picture it. Were you near the ocean or inland? Yeah, pretty much. Yep, near the ocean. And then later down my childhood, we moved to a place called Galuintgo, which is the main community. It's on Elko Island. That's about 3,000 people now. You would have known every single person. Yeah, yeah. I, I know everybody in the community. Yeah. Which families they come from, which dialect, which clans. Galawinku is the largest and most remote Aboriginal community in northeast Arnhem Land. Here, the traditional ways of hunting, living, art, law and language aren't historic. They're part of everyday life. Stuart grew up steeped in his culture, speaking Yolnumata, learning from elders the stories of his ancestors and how to take care of the land. Stuart's father was white and his mother was a Galawinku woman. My father died when I was five. All that I knew in Matamada was being black and I was treated as such by my family. I think it was later down the track when we went to Galuinko, Elko Island, where the population was a little bit mixed. They had white people working there and stuff. That's when I started to kind of see it when I went to the school there. And how was it viewed? What was the perspective like? I started to notice how evidently Mix I was, a mixed race coming from a full-blood Galpo woman and a white dad. When um, the Galpo Yoruba students started making fun of me for being mixed, and that's when I kind of realised, all right, I'm not like everybody. When you were a kid, you attended a lot of doctor's appointments with your mum. Can you tell me about those experiences? Um, it was normally white nurses and white doctors giving the opinion uh, but never really considered um, maybe she needs an interpreter, so perhaps she could articulate her symptoms in her first language because it's more you're more likely to be um, expressive in in your first language because obviously you dream in that language, you know. So it would be only right. So that was the only gap in that was that the health service lacked in cultural safety. That's why she died. So I didn't understand. I thought it was way of life. I think she was like in her early forties when she passed away. Where I'm from, 52 is when you die on the island. Three people a month die. All on modifiable diseases, you know. It's all about crying and dying, burying people, you know. At a younger age, I started to kind of see the dysfunction. So I didn't really know like what suicide was. So, In fact, I actually seen one of my family members. But after that, it was just never ending. At the age of 12, Stuart became an orphan. The experience of losing his mother shaped everything that followed. I got a phone call by the time I was 13 from Canberra, from my auntie. This is my father's sister, who's obviously white, and um, said, would you like to come down and do your education down here for two years or something, you know? And I agreed. So you're about 13 or 14 and you leave your tiny remote community you leave Elko Island, population less than 3,000, and you fly all the way to Canberra, which is, besides being really white, it's also really cold and southern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I came from a you know school that was probably 95% who are Yorongo, so black, <laughs> to a school that was 
95% white and I was a minority. So it was, it was quite mind-blowing. Scary times, scary times. Do you remember much about it? Yeah, yeah. I went there and luckily my cousin went to that same school as well. So it was kind of comforting, you know? Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. But it was funny times. This was around 2004. Everyone eventually found out that my cousin and I were related and nobody believed us because <laughs> they thought we were adopted because my cousin was white. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a very foreign concept for them to see, you know, uh, this doesn't happen. It can't happen. A mixed race product. <laughs> <laughs> the culture shock that Stuart experienced was immense, but he's smart and adaptable and above all, a survivor. But here's the huge irony. By being exposed to the so-called Australian way of life, this Indigenous teenage boy was, for the first time, taught that he didn't belong. Racism was a very new word to my vocabulary. And I can tell you that I found that word not on a dictionary. I had a friend and he introduced me to his friend another white boy and I went to shake his hand and then he was still standing there and I was like, you okay? Are you, are you going to shake my hand? And then he goes, I don't shake hands with no black man. And yeah, it was terrifying. It shattered me and I was like, oh, I don't know what this is. Yeah, that's how I found out. They were like, oh, that kid's being racist to you. And I was like, what's that? And then they were told me like, oh, it means he sees you as an inferior race because of how you look and where you're from. So that's how I found out what that word meant. Was that across the board? Because you would have been interesting to others. Were lots of people treating you like an other? Yeah, yeah. So I was quite evidently black. But really, where I come from, I was the light-skinned black. So it was quite funny. They were like, really, you're black and this and that. And I'm like, I, I'm not. I'm just, <laughs> I'm half white from where I come from. I'm light-skinned. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like, even I was quite dark for the school in Canberra I went to. This was one of the many culture shocks Stuart experienced during his life in Canberra. It's a different world. I, I understood it was me, I and mine mentality. So materialistic and capitalism is a core value of the Western life. So that was quite up in my face, you know. Where I come from, it's a collective culture. We share everything. So yes, that was the culture shock that I the way that I translated it, it was like me, I, and mine. Everything's mine. I learned pretty quick, though. By then, I started to understand the world that I lived in down there. And then I went back to Galwinko, then I started to kind of adapt in both worlds. Learning how to adapt between different cultures is known as code switching. Code switching is kind of like a way of explaining the way that some people change, the way they speak, their mannerisms, accents, body language, to both blend in better and put those around them at ease. It's not bad or good, it's a survival mechanism, and people do it all the time. For Stuart, switching between his cultures came with side effects. So I started going back down south to Canberra. I would start to think in English and dream in English. And then when I went back to Galunko, I started thinking in Yolngumata and started dreaming in Yolngumata. So I started to become a shapeshifter in two worlds, you know. <laughs> took me a while, though. A lot of people should embrace it. I embrace it. It took me a long time, but you have to adapt to this Western world, you know. 
if I live a fully Yolngu life, it's not compatible in the modern world. So you have to embrace both worlds because that's the world we live in now. Or you get left behind pretty much. I'm not saying that because I'm colonized. I'm saying that as a survival mechanism. Yeah, you got to survive. Because I started to dream in English and think in English and that kind of scared me. I was afraid that I was going to lose my culture. After two years of living in Canberra, Stuart decides to return home. But his perspective had changed forever. Yeah, it was never the same in the end. What my problem was that I seen the outside world. So I started to compare my life on the island as a Yorma boy. I couldn't be the same person anymore. I was never content after that. At 16 years old, Stuart could now see the shocking disadvantage of his people. I was living in poverty, and this is not the Australian life. Australian people outside don't live like this. So I started not to accept my environment. Mm. The system's killing someone, even someone that's still breathing today. A lot of my family members that I grew up with are stranded on welfare and in and out of prison. So they've kind of been washed off by the Western world. Seeing the contrast between the way white people in Canberra lived and how his friends and family lived back home was appalling to Stuart. Then he became a father. It shifted his perspective even more. He wanted to give his daughters a better life. So at 25, he began his career in healthcare. I realised that in order to have these both worlds, you needed to be educated in both worlds. So I learned my own education system in the Yorma system first because my grandmother told me this is the fire, this is the coal, this is the origins. If you can't get this fire, then you cannot survive in the Western world. Fire is my totem. This is how my grandmother talks. She's very in the spirit realm. <laughs> and I didn't know what she meant, but yeah, you have to get your first identity first your young identity. If you can't figure that out, then you can't exist in the Western world. But then later down the track, I realised that that is the only way that you can survive is to be educated in both worlds. And I'm not talking like societal culture, I'm talking like academically as well in both worlds. I started my Cert 4 and I thought that was it. Um, however, in the healthcare system, my competence was questioned all the time by nurses, you know, and midwives and doctors and stuff. Hence why I decided to do a degree in nursing, because you're always going to be on top of them to be equivalent. That's how they respect you and understand your knowledge. It's true. It's true. It's almost like you've got to be better, better than. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got some colleagues that, are, that once told me, um, she's a professor now, but she started up as a nurse and stuff. But even that was never good enough. People still questioned her clinical opinions and judgments and professionalism. Mm. So she went in to do a PhD. So she's a professor. So you always got to go on top extra than the white person's education background. That, listeners, is the model minority pressure we've been talking about nearly every episode of this podcast. Because when you come from a minority with the cultural baggage of low expectations, everyone expects you to fail and no one believes you when you say you're qualified. I asked Stuart to explain why the hospital setting can be a fearful place, particularly for Indigenous patients. It's power dynamics. 
cultural safety plays a lot of power dynamics in how they communicate. I guess it's a self-reflective method of how you use your biomedical knowledge and your white privilege and really analyze yourself before you talk to someone because it could have some serious consequences. So like people die because of this. They run off from the hospital and the medication's not dealt with and people die. That's where it leads to. I try to say, I ask them what they would like to be called, if it's an indigenous name or a European name. So that was kind of incorporated, even the admission documentation. Mm. It used to be just like, what does the person speak language? And they would just tick the box by saying indigenous language. And there's about 100 plus languages that are considered live in the Northern Territory. So I and my cohort, all my colleagues, would try to explain that, no, there's no such thing as indigenous language. There's names of nations and they speak that language. So now all that's changed. Wow, so it's now they'll name the actual language? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So calling it Indigenous language is like saying you speak Asian? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or like, oh, that person speaks European. Like, what? <laughs> Whereabouts, though? <laughs> you know, there was once incident on Kurumulunapingo, right? He's from the same island as me. So, for example, that went national, yeah, with the news where he was deemed as an alcoholic, but he was just born with hepatitis B, with a liver disease as a child. But it was labelled on the medical system that he was an alcoholic. Stuff like that. That's He didn't really even drink, did he? No, he barely drank. Yeah. But he, he had the disease when he was born. Mm. But people just jumped to the gun and wrote it on his file that, yep, happy liver disease due to alcoholism. And as a result, he died. So that's what it does. And despite all of Stuart's qualifications and hard work, people still underestimate him. I presented my research with my colleague Vicky. We went to a convention centre in Darwin in the city and it was about renal, so a lot of kidney disease conference with specialists and stuff. Anyway, I'd been practising my PowerPoint in the morning early so I could be perfect in my presentation. So I was practising my presentation and rocked up there one hour early so I could be professional and I was looking for for the room where where, where me and my colleague was going to present the research. This white lady turns around and says, are you doing one of the testimonies? And I said, what? Like, are you one of the um, renal patients with kidney disease? Are you doing a testimony as a patient? Because of the way I looked and according to the statistics, there's high rates of kidney disease with indigenous people here. In her head, she's calculated that and then she assumed that I, I was a patient. I was a researcher there. I was there at a professional capacity. It's quite degrading. I kind of learned to pick my battles nowadays because you can't keep pulling people up without them realising they're doing it because you become the villain. So it's just white fragility, you know. They get really defensive. Yeah, <laughs> and yet you get punished. Yeah, 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 I get deemed as the radical blackfella. So I've kind of picked my battles nowadays. In 2020, a seven-part podcast was released aimed at educating doctors and other medical professionals who work with Aboriginal people in Darwin Hospital. It was trailblazing in the way it acknowledged the real cultural differences that might be disempowering or intimidating black patients in mostly white hospitals. And instead of asking for white solutions, it actually consulted with Aboriginal people who were also specialists. He seems to have this great rapport because he actually wears 
a NAIDOC shirt or a, yeah. a football Guernsey with Aboriginal print on it. The Aboriginal patient's going to be like, oh, wow, this guy's quite relaxed. He's not all medicaled out with a green gown on and stuff. Now, if you're a racist or a bigot, you will not put on an Aboriginal print shirt. One of those specialists is Stuart Uwa-McGrath. The podcast is called Ask the Specialist, and I highly recommend it, but I may not need to because it's already really popular. I think the communications within the healthcare is a global issue. That's what the realisation is, because it's been downloaded all around the world. So the miscommunication in the healthcare system is a global problem. And that was something that we did that was intended for pretty much Aboriginal people in Darwin Hospital. Yeah, but it's gone global. Yeah, yeah. So certainly it's a big gap. From his childhood in Gallowinku to his teenage years in Canberra, Stuart has been quick to acquire the necessary tools to fit in. He has described himself as a shapeshifter. But it seems to me there are very few who see all of Stuart. I probably started to get accepted. I started to tend to barbecues and stuff with my white colleagues. When I was crowned as the 2021 Northern Territory Young Australian of the Year. And then I started my nursing degree. That's when my opinions started to count because I sound like them and I eat like them and I talk like them. My level of education is like theirs. So it became easy and I started to be seen as one of them. So being seen is measured upon Western society's metric system. Did it mean much to be Young Australian of the Year in NT? Not to my family, no. It's not their world. This degree stuff, going to Scotland for the conference for the research, Amazing Race Australia, it doesn't really mean anything. My family live in Yorongo world. They don't live in Western world, so it doesn't mean anything. But in this world, I became very accepted. I'm seen as part of the mainstream Australian society. I'm curious how that felt. Did it feel good to be in mainstream Australian society? Yes and no. Bit of both, I reckon. Yeah, I kind of know in the back of my head that if this was none, if I didn't have all this, then I wouldn't be sitting with academics, you know, sipping on French rosé and eating lobsters and stuff. This is only happening because I'm doing the equivalent to them. I'm aware of that. That's never drifted off because I know where I come from and I know where I'm coming from, you know? Yeah. And speaking of where you're from and your family, so they were kind of unmoved by you becoming Young Australian of the Year, going to Glasgow, um, doing TV shows. What does impress them about you? Like what is the achievement you can make where they're like, yeah, go, Stuart Yeruwa, that's awesome. If I'm affiliated with my family culturally, doing ceremonies and stuff, that's status in my culture. Yeah, and that's where you're valued and respected back home. That's right, for my Yoruba knowledge, not for... We say Balanda for white people, so it's not for Balanda knowledge. Because it's irrelevant. Why would they? That's not their world. Mm. <laughs> it's probably irrelevant for me because I shift in and out. I live both worlds. To live in both worlds is common to the migrant experience. But the thing is, Stuart's not a migrant. As an Indigenous man, he is as local as can be. 
Last time I was on Amazing Race, I was in Colombia, and I said to these two contestants, they were these white girls from Melbourne, and I said, you know what, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I don't feel like a minority in Colombia. So I felt like I was part of it. Race is a selective thing, Yumi. It shifts in between countries. Depending on which country you are, it shifts as being the minority, you know. But in this shift of space in Colombia, I was the majority. So it was a weird feeling, yeah. I felt more Australian than I was in Australia. How crazy was that? Because people ask me, you know, like, hey, you know, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Australia. And people are like, wow, you're really from Australia? And that was it. They took it for what it was. There's not such thing as, but you're indigenous, aren't you? I was just taken as Australian because that's what it says on my passport. It's amazing that to be seen as Australian, Stuart needed to leave Australia. Weighing up the value of culture, language and education, Stuart made some tough calls on how to best raise his daughters. I've kind of paused the Yolma world on them and I'm passing on to them Western culture and language first. I speak to my kids in English every day. They don't, they barely speak Yoruba though. And I get criticized for it a lot, but that's a survival language. It's a dominant Western world. Of course, I'm going to teach my kids that first. It's a survival mode. But then again, of course, I'm going to teach them the Yoruba culture and language and Yoruba world later down the track. It's not getting to extinction. There's about 15,000 Yoruba people that exist in Arnhem Land, and the language is really alive. It's still live. What's next for you? Ah, oh, well, start practicing my nursing in East Arnhem Land in Northern Territories, and I will solely pledge to be a full-time father to my children and teach them what it's like to live both worlds. I'm going to invest my time in that. This has been Seen. I'm your host, Yumi Steins. Created by Bernadette Fung-Nam-Wien with AudioCraft in collaboration with SBS. From AudioCraft, this show was produced by Bernadette Fung-Nam-Wien and Cassandra Steeth. Our junior producer is Alison Zwang. Sound design and mix is done by Ravi Gupta and executive producer is Kate Montague. The SBS team are Caroline Gates, Joel Supple and Max Gosford. Our podcast artwork is created by EVO Studios. Music is by Yo. Becoming a healthcare professional meant for your understanding of all those negative experiences that you had with the system and that your mum had? I decided to stop whinging, Yumi, so I became the change. There's no point protesting about things and saying things that's beyond your control where you can't change. I decided to do something about it. Becoming the change is the inspiration and motivation from so many people we'll meet on this podcast. Another First Nations person making change is this woman. My experience is that Aboriginal people generally just do not get access to the services that we need. This is Dr Tracy Westerman. She's a clinical psychologist and the founding director of the charity, the Westerman Gillia Institute for Indigenous Mental Health. And much like Stuart, Tracy is fighting the good fight for her people. Her work is fundamental in creating more culturally appropriate health care for First Nations.
we actually had four successive government inquiries into the suicide rates in our remote areas. All of those inquiries concluded that our young people were dying by suicide because of what they referred to as system failure. What we know is that there are only 218 Indigenous psychologists in this country. And so what that translates to is that for every 4,000 Aboriginal people in mental health crisis, there's only one Indigenous psychologist available to them. As an undergrad, I was quite shocked actually coming down from the remote Pilbara, expecting to learn all this amazing stuff that I could then use to go back to help my people. And the word Aboriginal wasn't mentioned in the first three years of my undergraduate degree. The psychology training is predicated on the basis of cultural exclusion. Most of the best practice and and the treatments have been developed predominantly by non-Indigenous people for non-Indigenous people. So what we're doing at Modulia Institute is not only developing more capacity in terms of having more Indigenous psychologists into, you know, on the treatment side, what we're also doing is we're ensuring that best practice research and treatment interventions and all those sorts of things that psychology has fundamentally failed to provide is actually being provided by Indigenous psychologists. And we now have 41 Indigenous psychology students just in two years since the Julia Institute started. And what that fundamentally means is that, you know, Indigenous people ourselves are driving this, but also non-Indigenous people are able to capitalise on that expertise and, and developing those really great models that we know are going to be most effective in our communities. Leadership is really about taking a stand for others more than it is yourself. And where we fail is that often people don't realise that you lift up the most marginalised and all, all of the country becomes better as a result.